Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with past winners and a few surprise guests. Today's guest is the Writers and Illustrators of the Future coordinating judge, David Farland. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good to be here. So I guess before we get into how you became the coordinating judge, I'm interested in how you got your start as a writer and how writers of the future fit in. Okay, well, um, I started in college uh, with the idea of trying to win a contest. Um, I'd, uh, uh, I think the very first short story that I wrote uh, while I was at BYU, I turned it in and, and uh, my professor suggested I enter a local contest, and I did, and I won third place. And and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. If I'd uh, worked a little bit harder, maybe I would have won first place. Um, and so I set a goal of trying to win the first place in a writing contest for the coming year. And I entered, uh, well, I, I wrote a story, and then I thought, well, I, I'd have a better chance if I entered another contest. And so I, I wrote about half a dozen stories over the coming year. And, um, and that's when I heard about Writers of the Future. And uh, all of a sudden, I thought, well, there, there's a big national contest and the local contests. And uh, so I, I turned in a rash of stories um, with the idea of trying to win first place in one of them and ended up winning first place in all of them. So uh, <laughs> I did pretty well there. You absolutely did. So um, at one point, you became a judge, and then Al just passed the hat of coordinating judge to you. Tell me about how that evolved well i uh i won the grand prize uh for the year that i won which is uh the third year mm -hmm. of the contest and uh al just invited me to come back and um you know the following year to pass the torch on to the next author and and i talked to the authors and um i'm not sure exactly how it happened i think al just uh was impressed by the fact that a i was winning a lot of contests and i was writing a lot and um uh, got my first novel contract just after winning Writers of the Future. And and uh, um, at one point, uh, I think I got serious. Uh, he, he asked me to, to talk to some writers about writing and, and uh, at one of the Writers of the Future events. And I, I uh, gave a little talk on why people read. And uh, when we got done, Al just stood up and clapped and uh, told the rest of the audience. He said, stand up and clap, damn you. That was the best talk that's been given in 500 years on writing. And, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. 500 years ago, that would be Albert Sidney was the finest critic at that time. So uh, I said, so Albert Sidney? And then he says, well, I couldn't tell him it was the best one since Aristotle. So <laughs> I was like, okay. And, and I think at that point... Um, I think that's when he decided. I could just see a change in his face, and I, I think he he uh, uh, asked me to be a judge. Gosh, just within a month or two after that. Um, wow. So, um, so it was just kind of an interesting, you know, way to get into it. Good. And then, at what point did you did he pass the torch to being the actual coordinating judge? Well, um, he asked me to be a judge and tried me out you know, with a couple of quarters to see how I did. Um, I went through the stories and, and, uh, and he agreed with, uh, with what I was doing. And, um, gosh, I think it was 1992, something along that line, 91, 92. Uh, he asked if I would be willing to go ahead and be the coordinating judge. And, um, 
So I was happy to do it. You know, there's that iconic photo of you shaking hands <laughs> with him, and yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, so they flew me out to Hollywood, and and uh, we shook on it, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, put on tuxedos and everything for it <laughs> for the for the photo. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was pretty simple, you know. Um, the contest was a lot smaller back then, so sure. we would get boxes of stories and boxes and boxes of stories, and and that um, uh, was it was a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, and uh, so uh, it was something that was sort of natural to do. And I found myself judging for all sorts of contests. All of a sudden, um, I would be asked to judge for college competitions and uh, hand out scholarships and things like that. And so it seemed like. Uh, there was just a rash of them right about that time. Wow. So that's, um, that's great. Cause it was, I mean, obviously Al just was just brilliant with what he did, how he set it up. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was quite a testament that he trusted you with, uh, with the yeah. contest. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you've got quite a record track record as a writing coach. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about that. Well, you know, once I started judging for writers of the future, um, I, it kind of led to some different opportunities. Um, I, uh, uh, gosh, about 1998, for example, I was writing for some, uh, some books for Scholastic, uh, doing, uh, some little Star Wars books. And, um, uh, I turned in my first little book and my editor there, David Levithan said, uh, you know, the the managing editor here just really loved that book, thought it was the best thing she's seen in 32 years, you know, and I thought, well, that was really nice, you know, and I didn't know. Is that Courtship of Princess Leia? No, no, this was a little, this was just a little Star Wars book that, uh, that I did for Scholastic for uh, middle grade readers. So I, um, I thought, okay, I'll turn in the next one and make sure I write it really well too. And, and, uh, after I got done with that, he asked if I would be willing to, to, um, look at some books and help them push, find one to push big for the coming year. And so uh, I said, sure. So they sent me some boxes of books and I chose the book Harry Potter to push big for the coming year and uh, uh, the, called the managing editor there. Um, I didn't know that managing editor meant president of the company. I thought managing editor was like, I don't know, somebody who manages other editors. Anyway, right. uh, <laughs> anyway so she... Uh, uh, we talked about why I thought Harry Potter would go big, and then we, uh, she said, "Well, you know, we've never we've never pushed a book like this. Never tried to figure out how to how to push it into becoming a bestseller. And what what would you do?" And so, since she didn't give me a budget, I just suggested that you spend lots and lots of money on advertising. And and um, I said, you know, about seventy percent of all books that are bought are gifts are bought at the Christmas season. So. You want to push this big at Christmas, which means, you know, buying advertising space at the front of the bookstore and behind the counters at the bookstore uh, over the Christmas season, which would be um, November and December. Um, and uh, then you get what's called a maximum end dump in the in the bookstore so that you've got a big pallet full of books and, and this kind of thing. And you know, I was looking at this is the kind of thing that would cost you at least $3 million just in advertising costs, plus another few million dollars to stock the books. And uh, anyway, it was kind of a crazy plan. And I, in fact, there were a whole bunch of crazy things about it. But um, 
they went ahead and did it. <laughs> and, and uh, of course, Harry Potter went on to become the best-selling book in the last uh, couple hundred years. Um, and, uh, and so that went big. And then uh, uh, shortly after that, I was asked to uh, teach creative writing at Brigham Young University. Mm-hmm. And several of my students went big. I had one young lady uh, came in and asked how to write the best-selling young adult novel of all time. So I sat down with her and we outlined uh, what became Twilight. Um, and uh, so Stephanie Meyer was one of my students. Brandon Sanderson, who's now a lead writer at, uh, at Tor Books, um, mm-hmm. did The Way of Kings. And, and a contest judge. And now he's a contest judge, yep, uh, was one of my writers. And Brandon Mole with Fable Haven, which is a New York Times number one best-selling author and uh, several others. Um, kind of came without. So I have a list of right now, probably about um, somewhere close to 80 or 90 uh, authors who are New York Times bestsellers that I've trained uh, either through seminars or through classes at BYU or through Writers of the Future or something along that line. Um, so, you know, it's it's been fun. I, I enjoy it. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know, it's sort of like Raising kids or something—you just kind of look at them and you're you're glad to see them do well, I guess. Right, right. And uh, so I I enjoy doing that. That's awesome. So on, um, I mean, you've got your own list of of books, mm-hmm. you know, that have been like I mentioned on the uh, Courts of Princess Leia, and then on this, My Way to Paradise and, and things and like that, Moon mm-hmm. Lords and. Mm-hmm. I think it goes after Rune Lords number eight, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm working on Rune Lords number nine, and mm-hmm. um, I'm about 600 pages into it. I'm going to try to finish it up here this uh, this summer. Um, in fact, uh, I'm excited because when I get done with teaching this week, I get to go home and work on my book for a while. Well, that's um, I'm very excited to hear that myself. Uh, and I have a whole bunch of things beyond that to do, but uh, yeah, that's one of the well, you things. We answered my so. question. That was that was the whole reason I went to do this interview. Yeah, there's a, when's he going to come out with number there's, nine? There's a, there's a whole yeah there's there's a whole lot of things that I'm excited about doing right now. So good. So we've already established what uh, when on Rune Lords number nine. But anything else that you can share with us about what to look forward for? Well, um, I'm working on a little historical novel which is unusual for me, uh, called Love Among the Cannibals. It's uh, about the first white man who went to uh, live in Fiji, which was called the Cannibal Islands back in the 1800s. And uh, that one's just turning into a lot of fun. Um, And then, of course, there's uh, another series, kind of a prequel series of the Rune Lords that I'm getting ready to write, and I'm having fun with that. And uh, I... I have my series Nightingale, which is uh, a new series that I'm I'm getting ready to to launch, and um, just a lot of different projects. That's great. Yeah. Now, one question I know a lot of people are interested to know: mm-hmm. What is it you look for as the coordinating judge in stories, so that people are going to like well, what you know? Certain things automatically just get yeah pushed out because it's not what you're looking for. Well, you know, there's there's it's difficult to put it down into a little formula, but but there's really three things that I think are key for me. Uh, the first one, I look for a fresh idea. Um, in fantasy and science fiction, it's called wonder literature, okay? And that's because it arouses a sense of wonder. And if a story has... Um, let's say it's using a good old idea that's been used a hundred times before... 
it doesn't really arouse wonder so much typically as it does nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can have a story with elves and dwarves that's like every other story with elves and dwarves. Uh, that probably is not going to be a first place winner in Writers of the Future. I'm looking for something that I haven't seen before. Uh, so that's the number one thing. The number two thing is storytelling. And by that I mean um, I look for a story with a great opening hook. I look for a story that engages me from page one. Uh, and within the first two pages, I typically need to see who my main character is, uh, what the major problem is, and where the story is set. And after that, as we get into the story, the character typically has to try to resolve a major problem um, three times. And so I need to get into those try-fail cycles, and then I want to have uh, uh, the story building uh, becoming more powerful, more intriguing as I go interesting twists and turns, uh, surprising revelations until we get up to the point where we have that big climactic conclusion. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that story has to just leave you um, feeling something. Typically, it's going to be, you know, an emotionally powerful tale, uh, but it could be a funny tale. Mm -hmm. It could be a very moving romance. It could be anything, but I want to feel something um, as well as have some sort of uh, new insights into life, okay? And so I'm looking at that storytelling. And then the third level that I look at is um, on a line-by-line basis, how well do you write, okay? Uh, There are some people who are great stylists who can't tell a story. And there are some people who are great storytellers who don't have much in the way of uh, stylistic um, uh, prowess. And ideally, we want to get both, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So if I've got a story where I've got a, a, an author who's showing uh, that they've got a good, a good strong ear for dialogue or poetics and um, uh, the power of the sentence itself is there, you know? So if I can get those three things in a story, I know I've got a first place story. Good. Now, we also look for, I know in Rise of the Future, we try to make it middle school on up. So how does mm-hmm. that Time. Yeah. Well, I have to watch out for certain things. Okay. Um, for example, uh, a lot of times I'll get stories that uh, maybe have too much sexual content or drug content, or they're just over the top on violence, things like that. Um, it's not a huge problem, but it is a persistent problem, you know. Um, particularly today, I think I, I get a lot of people who try to push the boundaries. Um, and so for middle grade, you're probably not going to be able to, to, uh, to do that quite as much. Um, so it's always a little bit of a juggling act. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just basically, uh, trying not to offend too many people with your story, I guess. It's <laughs> yeah. maybe one easy way to put it. Anything that you'd have to say to the aspiring writer, just as a little, I mean, you can go on for. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, first of all. Uh, you know, when you're in a, an aspiring writer, um, a lot of times you go around and you start looking for formulas about how do you do this and, uh, you know, how have other people approached it and all of that kind of thing. I think one of the keys is for you to figure out what you like, okay? When Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, uh, he wrote it on a level that... Um, uh, 
is kind of mind-boggling as far as his understanding of languages and where they came from. And he would change his entire style so that he could write using more Celtic words, for example, when he was dealing with elves. Or if he were writing from the point of the dwarves, he would use it so that he went back to more Germanic roots in his languages and things like that. And it was that love of language that drove him. And uh, very few people have that deep of a love of language. But the question that I have is, what do you love? Okay. If you love psychology, for example, and you're fascinated by the human mind, I want to see that in your story. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want you to see, try to do Tolkien. You know, mm -hmm. I've done, I've, people have done Tolkien. You know, Tolkien did Tolkien. You're not going to do it any better than he did probably. So go, go do your own thing. And, um, and, and that really just kind of falls into whatever it is that you like to do. I happened to be very fascinated by biology when I was young. And so I love creating creatures and um, uh, probably much more than other people do. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost a mental illness with me or something when I get into it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the way it should be. I think that you should find what you love and then imbue your work with that. Wow. So that's my first tip. Uh, second thing is, um, I was thinking about endings of stories here just as we were going, because I was, I was talking about that just a moment ago, and I thought, you know, I should tell them that uh, when you create the ending to a story, um, you know, you want, to f you want people to feel something that's powerful. And if you, if you study endings, you'll find that uh, with Writers of the Future, I've noticed, you know, there's, there's three ways a story can typically end. Uh, the character cannot get anything that they want, okay? Uh, you have a good person who struggles and, and very often I'll see stories where people even get to the end and the, the hero, uh, decides to, uh, stick a gun in his mouth and blow himself away. I will never take that story because stories are about overcoming problems, not succumbing to them. And so I am looking for stories where, uh, where the author has genuine insights into life that help you live a better life. Okay. And uh, for me, that's really important. And um, so I, I look for stories where we don't have that negative ending, but where we have a positive ending. Mm -hmm. And if you get everything that you want, it just seems too easy. I mean, it's called a comedy, uh, if you look at it in Shakespearean terms. Um, and um, comedies can be a lot of fun, but they're typically not very powerful. The most powerful ending typically comes when somebody has to pay the price to get something that they want. Uh, and usually it's a terrible price. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. And so when you pay that, that hefty toll for something, uh, that's the story that typically is going to elicit some tears and real emotion from the audience. And so look for the right ending in your story. Good, good. Well, that's amazing. And I know this is gonna be something that a lot of people will be interested to to listen to talking about that. So thank you very much, Dave, and um, have a great workshop. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm.